Hello and welcome to episode two of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. Today, I'm talking to University College Dublin Professor of Art History, Kathleen James Chakraborty. Kathleen's expertise is enormously broad, but in this episode we focus on her work around the Bauhaus, and particularly its women, looking at two of Kathleen's texts, her book, Bauhaus Culture from Weimar to the Cold War, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2006, and her 2019 paper, The Diversity of Women's Engagement with Modern Architecture and Design, Three Case Studies, published in The Plan Chum. The Bauhaus had an influence at the time and was important at the time. And Gropius was an absolutely committed and effective publicist, as was Le Corbusier. Mies, a bit less so. Um, but I think what makes the Bauhaus so enduring is really the story afterwards and the different places people go and the different impacts people have and the way in which the label is useful afterwards. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to uh... Kathleen James Chakraborty. Um, Kathleen, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure, Ambrose. I'm um, an art- architectural historian. I teach at the University of College Dublin, where I'm professor of art history. I publish mostly on German modernism, Erich Mendelssohn, the Bauhaus, post-war Germany, memory, uh, but I have a very active interest in teaching global histories and have spent a lot of time in India, which has also uh, fed into my work. More recently, I'm pivoting to work more on gender and also on uh, in the American context, that is the context of the United States, on race. Ah, right. So uh, as expected, a nice diverse thing. So we're going to talk about your work on the Bauhaus and Particularly, I want to give you the opportunity, I suppose, to explain to me, to us, um, the role, I think, of, of women within that context, which I think is, a, as, a, as your paper that you sent me kind of suggests, is, a, is an under-described aspect. And I've been reading around on it, and it is true, it's, it's, not, very, it's not very well documented, is it? In fact... I think one of the points you make in the paper that you sent me is um, that it's not very well documented in the history of modernism. Thank you. I think it's a very interesting question because I first really became aware of this in the 1990s when there was a very important book by Sigrid uh, Veldke-Werdman, I think her name is, on the weaving workshop. And this came very much out of the work that Magdalena Droste, who wrote the standard history of the Bauhaus um, in German, that it's been through many English editions, had in the women at the Bauhaus. In 2009, the 90th anniversary was a huge event, really surprised me because I'm not used to 90th anniversaries being made so much of. And the really fresh news in 2009, I think, was the attention paid to the women. And at that point, it was largely the weaving workshop. There were many, many exhibitions in 2009 and then subsequently that traveled. It took several years, but one of them came to the Barbican, for instance, in London. Uh, The Museum of Modern Art had it at the end of 2009, maybe beginning of 2010. For many people, the freshest work 
in those exhibitions included seeing the work of the weavers, mm-hmm. Günther Schützel, Annie Alpers, and a number of others. And there's been a real explosion of scholarship on them. And so I don't feel that's really a new story. But on the other hand, weaving isn't really central to architecture. And most people don't see it as central to industrial design. Now, you always had um, you always had Mariana Brandt's teapot. You always had her work in the metalworking workshop. And that teapot, which with silver, with ebony handles, turns out is one of the most iconic objects produced at the Bauhaus. It was only when Elizabeth Otto, uh, more recently, the last, I forget the, the year, but say in the last 15 or 20 years, published a book on Brandt's uh, collages, photo photo montages, that we saw another side of Brandt that actively engaged gender. And Otto and Patrick Rüssler have been really important in the centennial of the Bauhaus of tracking down pretty much all the women students. And it turns out there were many more of them than we thought, and they were active in many more different areas than we thought. And I think um, there's a larger reappraisal going on of uh, what women accomplished, why they were interested in modernism, and what they couldn't do. So becoming an architect and having a large practice was incredibly difficult. Um, Partnering with Mies van der Rohe and becoming and being one of the most important exhibition designers of the 1920s in Europe, which describes Lily Reich, was actually easier than being accepted at the Bauhaus when she goes and takes over the weaving workshop. Uh, there's not much interest in her. She's not a weaver. She's an elegant, fashionable woman from Berlin uh, who exhibits silks and velvets, and the Bauhaus weavers are mostly wearing pants. And, yeah. Uh, they're not they're not interested in that world. Um, but I think when you go looking for these stories, the interesting thing is how many of them there are. Mm. And I think in particularly in the interwar period, the stories about women's activities in modernism in the 1920s, whether it's Charlotte Perriand or Margaret Chate Lahotsky or uh, Eileen Gray or the women at the Bauhaus, those stories did not translate into the canonization of modernism in the 1950s well. And they began to be excavated again in the 1970s, but it's been a slow process. So I want to come back to this because this, I think, is a really fascinating thing. So one of the things that I've picked up from your writing and the writing of others is the fact that more women actually applied to the Bauhaus at its very inception in 1919. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yet there was immediately, it seems to me, or very quickly emerged a kind of problem with women um, with. Uh, but I want to come back to that. I thought maybe it would be really good if you could kind of quickly explain what we what the Bauhaus was um, and um, both both as a practical thing, but also as a kind of. Um, a movement, a kind of a philosophy, I suppose, because I think it is both these things. So, so, so my my supposition here is that the Bauhaus what, what was an event, a, a kind of a thing that happened, but more importantly, and the reason why it has been so effective f- for the whole world, is that it had a philosophy that undergirded it, which was very seductive in the modern period. Am I right in thinking that? 
You are, you are. So the Bauhaus is founded in 1919 in Weimar and it closes in 1933 in Berlin. And those dates are com- exactly coterminous and those places are coterminous with the Weimar Republic. So in retrospect, it comes to stand for the best things about the Weimar Republic. And it also stands for the kind of artistic experimentation, uh, not just in architecture, but coming out of the visual arts and then infiltrating design that is more comprehensive than you find anywhere else at the time. And I think crucially less commercial. So the commercial designs of this period are, you know, go out of fashion eventually, Eric Mendelssohn. The Bauhaus has the advantage of being an educational institution and of having this incredible timeliness. Um, It starts out being organized around craft and the revival of craft and expressionist revival of craft in the wake of Germany's defeat in 1919. But by 1922, Gropius has reoriented it really uh, presciently, shall we say, uh, to industry. And when I say this is prescient, he's looking at de Stiel. Theo van Duisburg is there in Weimar prodding him and the students along, although he's never part of the faculty. He's looking at constructivism, particularly El Lizitsky, who's back in Germany, uh, I think by that time, and certainly spends most of the 20s in Germany. So he's looking at this new abstraction and he's wedding it to an industrial aesthetic. Now, he's been interested in industry since before World War I, an industrial aesthetic already existed. He worked with Peter Behrens at the AEG. But to bring that back and to weld it onto the um, art coming out of De Stiel and constructivism is not unique. Le Corbusier is doing it as well. But Le Corbusier is doing it in an office with a magazine and, and Gropius is doing it at a school. And the German economy won't pick up again for another two years. There won't be many chances to implement this in architecture for another two years. But of course, eventually the school is kicked out of Weimar and moves to Dessau. He gets to implement it in Dessau. Dessau, which today, if you go to visit it, uh, seems a rather sad city apart from the Bauhaus because it's a Rust Belt city. Uh, But in the 1920s, the Juncker airplane factories were based there. And this was you know, as high tech in Germany or in Europe as Silicon Valley is to us today. I mean, the airplane, even more than the automobile and German expertise in the airplane production. Um, Today, we think of Germans with automobiles and you have also Airbus in in Hamburg as well as Toulouse. But this was really state-of-the-art industry. So there's this combination of this rich vein of art. Kandinsky comes to teach at the school. He's probably the most famous abstract artist in Europe. Uh, At the time he comes, that attracts a lot of people. It's interesting about the women because the predecessor school, and Gropius always discussed the Bauhaus as if he created it from scratch, but it was based on a school by Vandervelde, which had a majority of women students. And Gropius gets nervous that when all these women apply, and Marianna Brandt had been one of those women students of Vandervelde's, that when all these women apply, the school won't be taken seriously. And so he tries to put the women in the weaving workshop. We now know that many of them were in other places, but there's a real effort to not have it be a majority female school because he thinks that means it won't be taken seriously. 
you answered one of my other questions, which is why Dessa? I mean, why? Why? I mean, my my assumption was, and I, do, I, I, do, I haven't been, but my assumption was that it's a sort of backwater. Is it a bit like going to, I don't know, setting up your your um, your art workshop in Coventry or, or no, no offence to Coventry, but you know what I mean? Or what? I know exactly what you mean, but I think and I think if you go there today, um, it's a much more of a backwater than Coventry. Um, which it does, after all, have the University of Warwick on its doorstep, mm. um, one of the most successful of the uh, post-war uh, Russell Group universities in, mm. in England. But I think in the 1920s, there were two, th- three things that were really appealing about Weimar. One is, I mean, excuse me, about Dessau. One is that like Weimar, it had had an interesting 18th century. Now, Weimar had had a really a golden age with Schiller and Goethe. You couldn't say that about Dessau, but there is a really interesting um, garden there that is the first English style public uh, uh, court garden and public park in Germany. So there's a, there is a real strand of enlightenment Weimar. Uh, I keep saying Weimar, enlightenment Dessau uh, that was there. And then you had the fact that this was a very industrialized and very competitive area. And when we go today, we go to a place that was from the late 1940s to the 1989, uh, 1990, really, under communism. And it was not world competitive in that way at that time. But the airplane industry in Dessau was. The other advantage of Dessau is it's still, um, it's a very quick train ride to Berlin. In Weimar, people were really isolated from Berlin. In Dessau, people could commute. And the connection to Berlin was much stronger. And Berlin was, of course, in the late 20s and early 30s, uh, a really dynamic, uh, interesting, modern metropolis, much more involved and engaged with experimentation and modernity across all kinds of things, from sexuality to movies to theater to Two, two, two. Than even Paris or London or New York. Oh right, I see. So, so these great figures—they actually, they actually lived there. They weren't like, they didn't commute in from Berlin for their uh, their one lecture. It actually became a kind of cultural hub. And Gropius was very shrewd in building the masters' houses there to ensure that was the case. Namis went back and forth a lot, and Gropius traveled constantly uh, as well. But the fact that the master's houses that Gropius builds are right there, they're not right on campus. You had a short walk away, uh, I don't know, half a kilometer or something, uh, which ensures a certain privacy, but also accessibility. And it's very interesting because they're not examples of social housing. They're comfortable, middle class, Mm. at least, uh, dwellings. But that really pinned down the faculty uh, not all of them, but a group of them got those houses to live in, and that really pinned down the faculty. Did, did, did that model, I mean, so so the Bauhausian model seems to me to still underpin where where, where, where so the organisation of the of of the of the school itself. You had the master, you had the great figure, the Gropius or the uh, Van der Rohe, who had under them this kind of studio culture, this almost like an atelier uh, under them. And and 
I've seen a lot of architecture schools seeming to still kind of try and regenerate this idea of a, of a, a, a transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary kind of learning. Um, did the, did the, also the model of the organization of the school practically, like this idea of having master's houses, has that been influential as well? I think what's really interesting about the Bauhaus is how late it comes to architecture. I mean, Gropius is an architect, but remember that there's no training in architecture until he hires Hannes Meyer in, I think, 1927. So we have three directors who are architects and three directors who run architectural practices. But architectural instruction was not important at the Bauhaus uh, in the first half of its life. The original model uh, had two really interesting components. The first is the preliminary course mm -hmm. in which everybody is in there and is trained together in abstraction. Mm -hmm. And first with Hitton and then with uh, Maholi Naj and Alpers, you have a new pedagogical model which offers an alternative to teaching people to be artists through drawing the nude and the, and the classical uh, cast. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is incredibly important. And all, every art school education almost around the world um, by the post-war period is influenced by that. The mm -hmm. other thing is this coupling, which you already had in um, Germany before World War I, and which van der Velde already had in place in Weimar, this coupling of a form master and a craft master. The craft master taught you how to do whatever you were doing, but the form master were these amazing expressionist artists, Kandinsky and Clay, but also Feininger and Mucha. Uh, and to some extent, Schlemmer is, is going across this, uh, cutting across this. They're prompting you to think about your craft instruction in terms of this new aesthetic. And that, uh, you'd had that set up before, but the four masters before World War I uh, under Polzig in uh, Breslau or under Van der Velde in, in Weimar weren't as interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that atelier thing is not as sharp in the Bauhaus in the early years with reference to architecture. And I think there are many, um, um, the, I think there are many different sources for that in architectural education today of which um, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts uh, continues to be a very strong one in that the ateliers there were so strong around the master, much more so even than at the Bauhaus. But I think um, the Bauhaus had an influence at the time and was important at the time. And Gropius was an absolutely committed and effective publicist, as was Le Corbusier. Mies, a bit less so. Um, but I think what makes the Bauhaus so enduring is really the story afterwards and the different places people go and the different impacts people have and the way in which the label is useful afterwards. Paul Betts wrote a very good article about 15 or 20 years ago. He teaches history at Oxford now um, on the way in which the Bauhaus myth was useful in the Cold War, both to the United States and to West Germany. And yes, so, I read, yes, I read this. I read this. This was a really fascinating thing. And it really does consolidate this idea of the, the architect, particularly as master of their own self-image. The fact that the Bauhaus becomes somehow 
linked to progressive socialistic kind of politics when in fact it's much more ambiguous and, and not just ambiguous but in fact some of the masters have a quite intimate relationship with national socialism for example exactly and so but they've managed to kind of advertise that away exactly so when they start the school pretty much everybody is um left of center either for democracy or for communism and then germany settles down and the school is certainly associated with by both its opponents and its supporters with socialism uh, but it's not really a socialist operation, except under Hannes Meyer, who actually turns more of a profit than anybody else. Um, and then at the end, you have both communist and Nazi students and different people move in different directions. But Gropius in particular is very effective in the United States and in post-war Germany, uh, being able to establish this as the good side of the Weimar Republic, as de- and as democratic in the United in the after he moves to the United States, this becomes a template for democracy. And he's still giving that story in 1968 at uh, on the anniversary at the eve of the anniversary of the 50th uh, uh, on the eve of the 50th anniversary, which is marked by a big exhibition in Stuttgart and uh, and goes on from there. So it's this I think any group of people that you were going to pull together in Weimar, Germany, we're going to have a range of political positions. Experimentation is associated with the new. And I think certainly most people at the school supported uh, the new in terms of democracy, socialism, or communism. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the thirties, people make difficult choices. And, um, the people who aren't German leave. And of course, one thing about the school was it attracted uh, a lot of international students uh, from fairly early on. So many of them go back to where they're from. Um, I don't think any design position is obvious, is easily matched eternally to a political position. No. But I think it was very useful in the post-war period to forget the degree to which the National Socialists embraced certain kinds of modernism and certain kinds of modernity and to set yourself up in opposition to the socialist realism that the communist bloc was very strongly associated with in the late 40s and early 1950s. It's, uh, it's really interesting, that idea that, that particularly in architecture, it's very difficult to discern a politic. And I, I suspect it's a point that you make in, in your conclusion to, your, to the paper that you sent me, which I'll give the title of because that seems to be the polite thing to do. Um, the, the diversity of women's engagement with modern architecture and design, uh, three case studies from the Plan Journal um, from 2019. And in your conclusion, you have this a very interesting point, which is one that I always bang on about to my, my students, this idea of a kind of co-production of architecture, which, um, uh, what, what's your precise phrase here? You, um, it undercuts the... It, uh, the assertion of an implied masculine authority over the production of buildings. And in fact, we, we have, um, you, you, you call it an acute awareness of the collaborative nature of architecture and design. And that has that effect of diluting political, certainly political philosophy. And I think that's possibly been its salvation in a way that w- where, where other art forms, which are more 
you get a, a, a more direct impression of the uh, ideology of the artist between the the thing and the artist that there's there's no space at all you know weaving or painting music whereas in architecture you design it and then there's about a thousand people involved before the ribbon is cut you know and, and that has a good effect uh, and in architecture, it's very complex because there are several different things that happen that are different from art. So one is also what happens in the place afterwards. We associate places with what happens in them afterwards, which nobody involved in creating them had any control over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's very different. Architecture also, I think, at some level is inherently more political because the process uh, involves so many agents, even if we mm. tend to prioritize the architect. And what's interesting about the Bauhaus is the tension always in Walter Gropius's own life and production between a very collaborative process and his self-aggrandizement. Um, so he sets up an idea uh, philosophically, pedagogically, that's collaborative. And he eventually sets up an office, the architect's collaborative, that's very collaborative. But he sets up that office because Marcel Breuer, who's been working with him, doesn't feel he's getting enough credit for buildings that he's mostly designed. And so you have that that constant tension with Gropius between the collaborative ideal and the individual um, uh, self-glorification. And I think with architecture, um, I'm very fond of my friend Paul Jaskett's analysis of Nazi architecture, that the problem isn't so much the style. The problem is that the stone was sourced from slave labor in concentration camps. And when you get a similar looking building uh, using that kind of neoclassicism in Paris or London or, or Washington in the 1930s, those are being built by democratic governments. And you might talk about layers of imperialism and other issues. But when you're, you know, it's not that those workers were particularly well paid, but they weren't imprisoned. <laughs> and and yeah. so um, I think in architecture, there are many, many layers of this. I'm interested in look in like many feminists going back to people like Dolores Hayden in the 1970s and 80s in looking at the wide range of agency And I particularly at this point uh, think that by excavating the wide ranges of agency involved in modern architecture and design, particularly as you shade towards middle-class domesticity, uh, it's quite possible that we're going to be able to say that women were much more involved in shaping this than when you simply look at architects in a situation where not many women were making it very far into that profession. Although what really bothers me is not that so many women didn't make it that far into the profession in the 1920s. What really bothers me is having taught for 30 years that so many of the women I've taught have chosen very quickly to leave the profession because they, the way they were taught told them that there was no room for them in it. And yeah. when I run into women that I, who studied with me in 2016 and I run into them in 2000. 17 and 18 and they tell me they're already out because of this that's where I get really upset and feel we have to change the stories we tell to keep those uh people and not it's not always women it 
could be anybody else who feels marginalized by the way in which architectural culture sometimes runs, which can certainly include straight men. Um, but I think that emphasis on the the star figure is unhelpful in building a profession that's more responsive to the needs of the general public, which these days is really about sustainability. It's about housing. It's, um, it's not about producing the, the most perfect, wonderful building, even though we love those when we see them. And actually when we see them, sometimes they are about these other things because certainly uh, one of the best new buildings I visited recently is uh, the work of Grafton Architect at Kingston University. And that's a very sustainable and also inclusive uh, building. Uh, so you kind of have it all together. Yeah, yeah. But We're getting ahead of ourselves. I need, I need to pull this back. I want to, I want, I would, I would be grateful if you would kind of, so you touched on this really interesting point about this park in Dessau, which is based on the English garden. Or the English, the English sort of civic uh, park kind of model, and you've talked about the aeroplane factories and and this kind of industrial base. So, so Dessau and the Bauhaus are intimately tied into a kind of internationalism, uh, a sort of practical internationalism. The the manufacturing has a literally, uh, it's literally about movement and and. Um, going great distances and then you have this idea of bringing in something from from Britain an idea from Britain and replicating it and then you have the Bauhaus which is about a kind of I suppose it, modernism being about a sort of universalism and, a, and an, inter- was- an internationalism and a universalism but I what, what I wonder about is this link back to this other British thing which is the arts and crafts William Morris John Ruskin Pugin who, who comes from around here um, uh, to a certain extent and then the way that the Bauhaus seems to frame this is around industrial practices, which are, I mean, everything that everything that Ruskin hates. How does this? How do how do they square this circle? What what do they mean when they? So what do they mean when they talk about craft? Because Ruskin certainly and and Morris certainly meant one thing, which didn't look like industrialism. Absolutely, and this this is this squaring the circle is really interesting. So there are a couple of things to say here. One is that today we're very capable of critiquing the universalism of modernism Mm -hmm. because we know what that actually excludes. But in 1920s Germany, the universalism of modernism was an internationalism that was quite carefully designed to exclude nationalism. Mm -hmm. That for us is a very positive thing. Excluding German nationalism is good. And this park in um, Dessau was really um, like an English country garden, but open to the public as an urban park from early on and very much starts that in Germany. So it's very much associated in the Enlightenment era with progressive, inclusive politics while still under a court. But this issue of squaring the circle with craft and industry is important in Germany and happens earlier. So in uh, the early 20th century with the German Werkbund, which is founded in 1906, you have Germans like Van de Velde, well, who's not German, he's Belgian, but he's involved in this, who are reading Ruskin, they're reading Morris, they're really excited about what they're saying about craft, but they're not willing to turn the clock back an instant on industrialization in Belgium, in Van de Velde's case in the 1890s, 
or in Germany uh, with the Werkbund, including Van de Velde, in the early 20th century. Hermann Mutasius is another key figure here. He's He's been posted by the Germans to the German embassy in London. He's written an important book as an attache on uh, uh, the English house, uh, exporting the English uh, suburban arts and crafts uh, villa uh, to Germany, where he designs a bunch of them outside of Berlin himself. Are they successfully, and, are they well received? Very well received oh, and very cool. influential. And so what Gropius is doing is picking back up that discussion that he's been part of before World War I, where you are already squaring the circle by um, trying to preserve culture from industry. The British do it in Morris and Ruskin and Leatherby and Ashby's case by turning their back on industry and having a counterculture that is about the medieval and about craft and eventually more and more modernism within craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Germans do it by elevating industry to culture. So the English do it by creating a counterculture and the Germans do it by trying to fold industry into culture. And Karl Ernst Osthaus, who's an important patron of, of uh, Van de Velde's, but also an important figure in Gropius's uh, life before World War I, a mentor for him, is a key figure in that twist, which Frederick Schwartz has written about very well in his book on the Birkbund 20 years ago. And so Gropius comes to the Bauhaus uh, with that background, and he's able to re-embrace that in 1922 when he turns the school away from expressionist craft and towards industrial design. Uh, and what's new when he does that shift in 1922 is that the art now is abstract painting. It's Kandinsky, it's uh, Mondrian, it's El Lizitsky, it's clay, uh, rather than it being uh, the art that was on offer in 1906 for these people would have been uh, sort of Hoodler, uh, a Swiss painter who's not very well remembered today, but was very big at the time uh, in Germany. Um, so, so that's, sh- it's a, for anybody who's familiar with the, the English tradition, Mm-hmm. And it's a particularly English tradition because Macintosh and Margaret MacDonald, Macintosh are doing something slightly different. It makes no sense at all. But to the Germans in 1922, it makes sense because it's something that they've been uh, mixing it up with irrationally, perhaps, for some time already. And that's... It's interesting that you mentioned Macintosh, which is where we first met, in fact, uh, I do believe, um, at the Glasgow School of Art, where Macintosh, as you say, he does manage to square this circle quite brilliantly. He uses, and one of the, one of the um, scholars I talked to about that building of happy memory, God, what a shame that is, um, the reason it's so extraordinary is that he takes these ship craftsmen from the Clyde and he basically gives them license they're they're as good as it gets they're Clyde shipbuilders they're as good as it gets in terms of industrial production and design and he says now make me my ironwork make me my windows make me my staircases and they do it and so the building has this 
extra had sorry this extraordinary quality of both being an exquisite piece of architecture and having a a whole pluralism of voices you can you could almost feel the made quality of the industrialness and i guess that's what you're saying about the the, the german approach is to try and or is that more it does that sit between the two is if you've got the english turning your back and the german turning trying to elevate and leaven the dough of industrialism with art you've got macintosh sitting somewhere in between the two well i'm a huge macintosh fan and i'm very grateful to florian urban to have invited me to glasgow in time to really see the building properly oh wasn't, uh, it, wasn't it amazing our, 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 the, the day of the first fire, the news came just as we were having a school meeting and, and we were practically all in tears, men and women alike. And regardless of what you taught, this is a school meeting in art history, not in architecture, because we all grasped the enormity of the loss. Um, I, I, was, I, was sat, I was sat at my computer in my office, my window facing the library window. And I... This is, does sound a very banal story. I was sat there and I was doing a lot of things. I had CAD open, Illustrator, Word, email, doing loads and loads of things. And I smelt this burning. And I thought, I, I genuinely thought to myself, I'm working this computer too hard. It's starting to smoke. And then I thought, no, that's wood. Um, anyway, it was pretty, it was a bad day. But anyway, keep, sorry, sorry for interrupting with my silly story. Oh, no. No, no, it's not a silly story. And I think it's, it's one of those things that will stick with you forever because it was such a catastrophic uh, situation for us mm. i mean for people in architecture that's like the day kennedy was shot or whatever it really was, it really was, that we yeah. all remember because um that's the most catastrophic peacetime loss along with the uh chapel over the holy shroud in turin i think in my lifetime well and uh, notre dame seems pretty bad now oh, no, yes but notre dame Notre, and I saw Notre Dame after the fire. Notre Dame will be rebuilt. And Notre Dame, 100 years from now, will be like Reims, where when you go to Reims today, you know it was destroyed in World War I, but you enjoy seeing it and you evoke the medieval. And I can believe we'll get to that with Notre Dame, but we're not going... And I can believe we'll get to that with the Shroud uh, in Chapel in Turin, but we're not going to get to that with, with the Glasgow School of Art. Macintosh is really interesting in this regard, too, because he and Margaret MacDonald Macintosh had such an enormous influence in German-speaking Europe, but primarily in uh, Vienna and Darmstadt, and not so much in the world that Gropius inhabited, not so much on Barons. And so in Gropius's world, the technical detail in metal or concrete matters more. Uh, the, the detail in metal that looks factory-like, uh, more factory-like than some of the Macintosh mm. uh, ones, albeit done by somebody with less skill. Um, and what really struck me the first time I went to the Bauhaus in 1985 was the quality of the detailing, because as an American who had experienced modern architecture, on the east coast of the United States, largely as post-war building, and hadn't seen much Mies in the original, although I certainly knew the Seagram building. The quality and, and fine grain of the detail at the Bauhaus, which I uh, saw nine years after the East German, quite good renovation of it, was astonishing. And I saw that as well when I went to the Netherlands and looked at buildings by 
uh, Diker or went to the Vanel uh, factory. You see that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's something uh, that you don't see in the housing of the 1920s. It is something you see in Barron's. And the AEG turbine factory is really the place, and Barron's is other work. It's really his fans, his, for instance. It's really the place where this aesthetic starts. And, and is the that the aesthetic of craftedness? Is that, is that where you yeah, might no. argue? Okay. It's, the interesting thing, it's not so much about craft. It's about industrial imagery as high art. So what you see in uh, Barron's AEG factory is something that's clearly a factory, but also a temple. Yeah. And so the sense of craftedness that you get with Macintosh that you got at the, at the School of Art, you don't get that sense of craftedness so much at the Bauhaus, I think, but you do get a sense of the detail coming down to a much finer grain than what you get in most 1950s modernism, including the very best of it. Um, and, and that's something that I also saw in the Netherlands uh, and was really taken by in the Netherlands when I was first touring a lot of the 1920s, uh, stuff there, the school, the open air school in Amsterdam in particular yeah. has that really fine grained sense. You talk, you talk, so I want to move on and talk more about this, 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 this role of, of women of woman within modernism and i think there's i'm going to make a i'm going to suggest a link which is that this industrialism lends itself to mass production mass production is related to everyday life and consumerism and it's at that point where the the and maybe I'm being controversial. Maybe I'm being. Maybe this is somehow offensive in some kind of way. It's at that point that the f that the female voice becomes very strong in actually um, articulating what modernism should be. Because I suppose, in a way, consumer the consumer is king or queen in this case. That's that's exactly. I, I you've hit on things that I think are really important. I think the first thing is that mass production and the industrial has been gendered as masculine. Of course, we know that most of the early workers in the textile plants in uh, the UK were women or children, mm -hmm. but we still, we think of engineering, we think of mass production as masculine. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that when you look at the consumer face of it, we tend to denigrate that as only women, um, as, 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 as feminized. And there's a very good essay on, by Andreas Heisen that he wrote in his, uh, included in his collection After the Great Divide, which was published in the late 1980s. And that really uh, was important for me in thinking about how important consumerism really was within modernity. And what's interesting about the women in the story in the 1920s and arguably even in the 1950s and the women who were journalists and as well as designers or who ran design shops, um, as well as actually being uh, designers and architects, uh, is that in many cases, they're rather softening somewhat that mass production um, on the consumer side of things. But why is it that these women are interested in modernism? It's a slightly different story. You can be a man and come from a very working class background and possibly become an, a famous 20th century architect. 
Louis Kahn and Eric Mendelssohn uh, are two examples. Uh, Kahn came from dire poverty and Mendelssohn certainly from a lower middle-class kind of situation. And their sisters worked so that they could go to university uh, and become architects. Uh, but the women in these stories are almost all middle-class to begin with. Uh, they have some level of education uh, to begin with, and they are trying to support themselves by um, through businesses that are often targeted at other women, sometimes very wealthy women, such as Eileen Gray's shop in Paris, sometimes uh, very middle-class women reading uh, shelter magazines. But they are interested in modernism, above all, about personal emancipation. And I think we focus so much on the 1950s housewife that we forget even in that context how much personal emancipation was involved from getting out from under the Victorian definition of social status in which you wore 20 pounds of fabric on you if you could afford to that needed to be sewn by how many hours of labor and laundered and maintained by how many hours of labor. And then you uh, exhibited your status in your home through having how much linen, how much silver, how much porcelain, how many heavy curtains, and how liberating it was even for middle-class women who had some money to get out from underneath that. And not everybody chose to. There would have been plenty of genteel women in my family in the United States and their counterparts in Britain who were still showing off their social status well into the 1980s in terms of 18th century furniture and uh, a little Chinese export porcelain on the mantelpiece. But for many other people, uh, some of whom were lesbians, some of whom had unconventional relationships, some of whom rebelled in no other way, uh, expunging their life of all of that stuff and finding lightweight, practical, casual alternatives was liberating, even if you were still a housewife. Mm -hmm. And that aspect of modernism is not about heroic male architects, even when it intersects with their stories, as Charlotte Perrion does with Le Cabousier or Lily Reich with Nice. And they were particularly Reich with somebody who certainly understood luxury, mm -hmm. uh, but minimalist luxury. Mm -hmm. And I find that her, um, she did an exhibition design in the early 1930s in Berlin for an exhibition on housing that Mies organized in which her lumber display could be, you know, the sculpture of Anthony Caro. Uh, that, that minimalist uh, aesthetic had a real visceral appeal, not to everybody, but to some women as a way to make a career going forward. And a lot of these women, some of them were wealthy and, you know, look at Phyllis Lambert, she didn't have to do anything, but many of them um, were also trying to support themselves. Mm. I've, I'm going to make a controversial, and uh, maybe it's a controversial, there's, there's, um, uh, Ernst Gombrich's book, uh, The Preference for the Primitive. And I make this I make this um, connection with my with my um, master's students in a lecture course I give on, on, on 
theory that this preference for the primitive that, that Gombrich outlines, and he traces this story from the ancients all the way through, that there is this point of, and he, he likens it to the, to, to the, uh, the um, organic analogy of Aristotle, that there's this point of decadence that society, culture, material culture, and for the Greeks, it was in terms of rhetoric, in terms of poetry, in terms of theatre, um, as manifestations, I suppose, of broader cultural um, uh, trajectories. But there's this kind of building up towards decadence, and then there's a necessary cleansing. And modernism, for me, and I think sustainability, post-postmodernism, both have this characteristic of being something to do with um, a an inherent feeling that things are out of control, that we're losing sight of the, the, the true platonic form of architecture, material culture in, in various forms, and that we need to clarify. So you get that gross kind of pre-Raphaelite. I, I loathe the pre-Raphaelite painting. I recognize that they're very good, but I don't like them. Um, and then you get that, 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 that modernist cutting away as you say move towards things like abstraction um uh, uh moving towards a kind of uh, a minimalization of just the stuff around us and i i wonder if there is anything in that 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 what we're just seeing is the ref is the next wave in this endless cultural wave of growth excess and then decay and a kind of cleansing and, and is this something that the women are feeling as well because being in the Victorian period, obviously, more, as you say, having to wear 20 pounds of cloth and then having to curate the interiors of their houses, the weight of doing that must have been, well, time-wise, exhausting, money-wise, ridiculous, and, and, and sort of emotionally just impossible in the end. Well, exactly. And so I think on the one hand, that was what the women were given to do, the upper middle class women in the Victorian period. And so you have a lot of women involved in the arts and crafts movement and finding that um, a, as a really an outlet for them uh, themselves. And uh, you also not just in stuff, but also in gardens with somebody like Gertrude Jekyll. Mm. But I think um, this this issue of the wave of styles uh you know, you go back, it's not just Aristotle and it's not just Gombrich. Winkelmann talks about it, uh, that uh, the Hellenistic, of course, is less pure than the mm -hmm. Athenian. And um, I grew up uh, I, in the Henri Faucillon tradition. So the life of forms of art mm -hmm. and the shape of time by Kubler uh, would have been very influential in my thinking about style that way. Although mm -hmm. I also grew up reading Wolflin and I kind of like the Baroque. Um, I, I've always been, uh, I mean, given the chance uh, between uh, looking at, at, at a Titian, uh, a late Titian, which is almost Baroque, or a Rembrandt or a, a Rubens would interest me more than looking at Raphael. And that's just my personal taste, just as you may not like the pre raphaelites terribly much. I, I like that um, emotive and I like that kind of spatial drama of a Borromini or a Guarini. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I, if you could drop me down in St. Evo's today uh, or in uh, Bramante's Tempietto, I'd pick St. Evo's. Um, so, so there's that. Um, but I also think that um, this was a 
because women were so strongly associated with consumerism that this gave uh, those women who wanted to make a real break uh, a way of doing so. And also, um, and, and reaching out to other women to do so was uh, socially acceptable, uh, setting up a business. One of the women I'm really interested in is Astrid Erickson, who established yeah. Svenska 10 in Stockholm, which wasn't a cutting edge shop at the time, but it was certainly progressive in its design orientation. Today, since it's nearly 100 years old, it looks uh, pretty tame and old fashioned, although it's interesting that the shop is still running and that the income today goes entirely towards ecological environmental uh, causes. It's, mm. it's one of these many uh, businesses that's become really a nonprofit foundation. Um, so, but that was about where you put your cut flowers mm. um, rather than uh, this, this enormous array of ac accumulation. But and I just I wonder if there is that feedback loop between between modernism as a clarification, as modernism as something as about paring down um, and, and reducing excess and then doing this other thing that you point out, which is elevating simplicity to, a, to the status of high value. In fact, the which is why Macintosh computers sell for three times the price of a Dell, because they've been exceedingly well designed to be less and less and less. But, but I wonder whether there's that feedback loop in 20th century modernism. Uh, which you see in the Bauhaus, and what, and I, um, between the female, the, the tyranny, the tyrannization of females through stuffness, just too much stuff, that then goes towards actually influencing the way that people like Behrens um, and like Gropius are actually thinking about modernization as a process. I, and, 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 may, and, and maybe then the presence of so many women within the Bauhaus is actually starting to be reflected back in the way that modern architecture then emerges oh it would be exciting if you could do that i'm not sure that i'll be able to pull that off i'm not sure that the gropius is uh that gropius in particular mm -hmm. was looking hard enough and caring enough about the what the women did i okay. think the place that's more likely to make the argument is with Mies because i really do think and i'm not alone in this i know beatrice Kalamina uh has said this too that Mies learns about a certain kind of abstract elegance from Reich's exhibition designs and that he really carries that forward with him after mm -hmm. that personal relationship is broken down and, and after Reich has died. Um, but I think um, that, that one of the things that interests me about the Bauhaus women uh, and is that they make a break with fashion. Fashion itself is so liberating in the 1920s in Europe with bobbed hair and short skirts. Mm. But it's really interesting to me how seldom the Bauhaus women wanted to be photographed as flappers. And instead, the clothing yeah. they wear, the flapper dress, if I were sitting here wearing a flapper dress and a cloche hat, I would look passe, retrograde, 1920s, dressed up, out of the costume out of the great Gadsby. Yeah. If I were standing up in front of you wearing the clothing that some of the Bauhaus women are photographed in, the weavers, particularly in the group photos, you wouldn't even notice that it wasn't 2021. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to tell a hundred years later that um, I was wearing antique dress. That 
ability to set up something in the 1920s that's outside of fashion and that remains relevant today. I mean, there are times in between where you couldn't have worn those clothes. But if I, in 1922, had been wearing my dress from 1908, I would have looked dated. An old woman could have gotten away from it. Oh, well, I'm an old woman now, but gray-haired. But um, but if, as a young woman, I'd been wearing my mother's dress, it would have looked like dress-up. And yet I could now wear what those women wore in the mid-1920s and walk down the street and go buy my groceries or pop into the pharmacy or go out for a pint and nobody would even notice the difference. And that ability, that I think is at the core of what the Bauhaus did. And it did it in many different ways. It interests me that the women did it in their clothing because that wasn't at the core of what the Bauhaus was about. There wasn't a, they didn't teach fashion. They didn't do dress design. But it's also what's true of the teapot, of the children's toys, of the chair. Mm. Uh, if you take somebody who knows nothing about architecture or design today and they walk into a bank office or a museum lobby and there's a Breuer chair, a Vasily chair by Breuer, we know that that's a design that's nearly 100 years old. We know that that's from the Bauhaus they might well assume it's new. Mm. And that ability to read as new, or at least now, and not yesterday's yesterday. Mendelssohn's architecture from the 1920s read as yesterday's yesterday by the 1950s. But, uh, but Breuer was able to be in that moment in the 1950s, and a Breuer house from the 1950s it doesn't read as yesterday's yesterday right now. No, no. And so that ability to create a new classic that stands outside of time while being of its moment, that's fascinating to me. And the men at the Bauhaus were able to do it as well. But it is interesting that the women could do it in areas of their life that weren't directly related to the school, such as their haircuts, their shoes, their tops, their pants. Uh, but also from that, I, I, I was looking at the book by Ulrich Müller on Bauhaus women, and some of the photographs of the young women in there, as you say, could be taken from any period of emancipated history. You know, uh, you take off the ridiculous clothing, and what you have is, um, it, it transforms the behaviour that's possible. You know, you've got them pressing their face to the glass and pulling faces and being daft and it's really very beautiful and and what what one hopes to see architecture being able to do and and a cultural thing like this being able to do but i was i just wanted to um i think that's a really really interesting idea um this idea of then the 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 way yeah you say this um this modern architecture is a in, in your in your paper that I mentioned before, a means of transforming the daily surroundings of others, especially women. So women then adopt m modernism and use it as this device for, as you pointed out, a lot of the women at the top of uh, the influential people within the modernist movement, women within the modernist movement do come from privilege, but they use their position and this language of design to emancipate the everyday life of other 
women, ordinary people, ordinary women. And, and, the, and those are mostly, I should add, working uh, middle class women. We're not talking about the working class. I don't think and I think this is one of the issues that we would like to romanticize modernism as being largely about working class housing, for instance. But you can tell very easily in Germany what's working class housing and good working class housing, I might add. That stuck. Uh, that continues to be cherished places to live, and now is often mm. inhabited by intellectuals uh, from uh, middle class housing. And you can tell the difference between what Gropius designs in in Dessau for workers and what he designs for people who are teaching at the Bauhaus. Mm. But um, what these women buy for their own homes is not usually really Bauhaus design. Uh, what middle-class female consumers who are reading uh, journals edited by women or going to shops run by women, but it is much more advanced than what had been there before. And so that also interests me that, that in between, because we tend to remember only the most avant-garde design of a period. Um, although I think in the case of Scandinavian design from the 1920s and thirties, most of us, can can look at it and appreciate, uh, you know, even if something, I mean, for one of the things, for instance, that uh, Astrid Erickson did was she made objects out of pewter rather than silver. So it was much less expensive. And it was associated with the fact that in the 18th century, most Swedes would have eaten off wood or pewter uh pewter had been part of daily life because it doesn't break (laughs) unlike uh china and uh and so uh pewter was again this going back to the uh cutting out the superfluous and going back to the basics uh it wasn't as expensive as silver so somebody who might be given silver for their wedding might nonetheless have pewter and use pewter and so I think a lot of it is about the fact that uh, we're trying to make a society that includes um, some grains of status still. It includes uh, things that aren't simply functional, but that one enjoys. But if you look at 1950s Europe or 1950s the United States, you're talking about societies that are much more equitable than what we have today. And you're talking about societies in which in the United States, for instance, people who'd grown up in mansions with servants were slimming down, uh, even if they could afford mansions and servants, because it wasn't the done thing. It wasn't socially acceptable in the United States to earn more than about 12 times what the lowest person in the company earned. And today, you know, it's socially acceptable at the universities in the United States for the university presidents to make many multiples more of that than what the janitor makes, much less when you get to the for-profit corporate world. And so I think that appeal about Scandinavian design, for instance, when you still have a sense of of a craft, even if it's mass-produced, or a sense of material, even if it's mass-produced, but it's something that is affordable, not to everybody, and doesn't express the top 10% of status and does, isn't affordable to the 20% at the bottom, but that leaves you 70%. Mm. And if 70% um, are the market for something, 
Uh, that's we're not at a place right now. This isn't the Bauhaus. This is a little later, but but the Bauhaus helps establish is one of the things that helps establish the ground plane for that. Yeah. Uh, if we have a situation where seventy percent are buying something that's as enduring as a pewter bowl, I mean, pewter bowls are pretty much indestructible. <laughs> Children can throw them and you can pick them up and wash them off. And the next generation of children can throw them. And uh, the kids who who originally threw them can pick them up and wash them off. And it doesn't convey status, but it does convey durability. Mm. And if it's a nice design that um, is like a children's girl's little smock dress from the 1920s that can still be revived today that where you don't really notice that it's in or out of fashion then you don't have disposable disposable fashion yeah, uh, yeah. around the pewter bowl that's sort of the niche that that pewter bowl that three generations can hurl off the high chair that this is that interests me yeah yeah, yeah. well that brings i think just on a final point and i think that is a really good segue, really. This idea that, now, I don't, again, a total speculation based on nothing more than gut feeling and listening to you. Is there a, an association here between this affordability, sustainability, um, insofar as these things sustain your pewter bowl, for example, or, or, the, or the way that, for example, some of the um, Smithson's designs of chairs and things like that, they're incredibly robust, incredibly well-made. Um, and they're well made because they can be well made because the design is exceptional um, and Jack, Jacobson chairs and things like that. Is there a sense that for, for, for the 20 in the 21st century that what we have now in this remarkably um, unequal age, remarkable, an age of kings again, we've got uh, a design class perhaps architects design class um designers not designing for that level for, for, for the the actual needs of the domestic realm which is still probably it's fair to say the feminine realm it's still defined very much by females and so people aren't looking to females and saying what do you need how does your life work what would be useful here Rather, they're looking to profits and saying, well, make cheap things that smash really quickly. So you have to buy more of them. I mean, is exactly. that, I mean is, is that a problematic? Did I just say a problematic thing? I, I often do. So I'm kind of confused. No, no. I, I think I mean, I think I would hope that the difference in gender roles is flattening out. I would hope yeah. somewhat. I mean, certainly the difference in in just how people identify themselves in gender is flattening out right now, uh, which I think is very welcome. And so I would hope that these distinctions that mattered so much in the 1920s and 30s to so many people, if not to everybody at the Bauhaus, uh, become less important about what's masculine and what's feminine. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to be essentializing um, that at all. But I do think that one of the things that's been an important part of being educated as an architect Mm -hmm. in many situations in the last hundred years is to be educated in a kind of distinctiveness. And on the one hand, you want to teach your students to understand excellence and to understand what works. But what really interests me in good buildings today are buildings that are for uh, are not being designed for the 1%. Mm. 
Mm. So, or even the 10%. So one, one of my other favorite buildings, new buildings is, um, uh, St. Angela's school in Cork, which is a girl's secondary school designed by O'Donnell Toomey. Mm. Now, the, it's not, it's an, it's a series of additions and extensions. And I toured that with a group of Irish architects and people who teach architecture in Ireland. And we all agreed that it was quite likely that a large percentage of those girls would go on to be interested in architecture. And whether or not they go on to become architects is another matter. But they would understand intuitively after six years in that school how making places makes a difference. Mm. And this was not about expensive surfaces. This was the absolute antithesis of walking into a five-star hotel and all the things that code that you're in a five-star hotel rather than a three-star hotel or that you're in a fine dining restaurant rather than uh, in your local chipper. Uh, but the way in which place works, the way in which gathering spaces work, the way in which circulation worked, the way in which views out over the city of Cork worked, you just were going to be enriched in your daily life mm. by that. And I'm interested in architecture. I mean, I wrote a book called Architect German Architecture for a Mass Audience. I'm interested in architecture that is for most people. Mm. Uh, and I think that as a profession, architecture can work harder about that. And I also think that the extent to which architecture is able to produce designs that most people can understand in some ways are uplifting and improving of daily life mm. will enhance their ability to impose what are sometimes uncomfortable, sustainable situations, because we're not going to be, you know, you go into a, a, a fancy hotel and you set the temperature of the room at what you want it to be. And it always drives me nuts because I don't want it to be 68 degrees. I want it to ha be on ventilation rather than heating or cooling most of the time. I mean, if it's 20 degrees in Chicago, 20 degrees Fahrenheit in Chicago, I want heat. And if it's 40 degrees Celsius and somewhere else, I, I want cooling. But you know, I, I'm, I'm okay in a band between, you know, I mean, I live in Ireland, so you just add layers or you take them off. And, yeah, yeah. and, um, and most of the time you can mostly manage with that. Not, I mean, I'm not saying I never turn on the heat, but, or I never use an electric fan, although I haven't in this latest heat wave, but um, making it so that we are comfortable so comfortable in these places that we're not thinking about whether it being a problem to throw on a scarf, to throw on a jumper, to, to take off a jacket, mm. uh, because these are the places we want to be in. Mm. I think we need to work harder on that. And I, 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 it's interesting to me, the difference between the places, the pilgrimage sites from, for architects and the pilgrimage sites for the, everybody. If you go to the Villa Rotunda, which everyone should go to, everybody there is an architect or at least an architectural historian or the hanger on of somebody. Uh, if you go to Falling Water by Frank Lloyd Wright, it's everybody. Mm. The Salk Institute Courtyard is not a place that people make pilgrimages to unless they're architects, but people who find themselves there for some reason or another, largely because they're scientists or related to scientists, have the same sense about it 
that architects have about it. You don't have to have studied for five years. Um, you get it. Yeah. And there's something about a material integrity in that, but not a material showiness. And that immaterial integrity uh, that, for instance, I find very much when I go to the Smithson's Economist building, it's about material integrity, but not showiness. Mm. Some works by the Smithsons have held up and some haven't, as we know. But the Economist building as an idea, as a place, holds up extremely yeah. well. And we need more of that kind of thing where people probably who don't even know who designed it cut through there just because it's the nicest alternative. Uh, it's the I, nicest path where there are multiple paths to choose from. And they know that. That's a really good point. And I think that idea of good quality spaces perhaps is that moment where we move, as you say, beyond the idea of a, of a gendered environment. Everybody knows what a good, a good architectural space looks like. Everybody loves Venice. No one goes to Venice and goes, this is ugly or this is rough. They go there and, and, and it's transformative for everybody because it works in that way. And I think that there is an architecture that we need to start thinking about more carefully. And you say uh, O'Donnell Toomey and, and Grafton and people like that. One of the ones that I've always liked, modernist ones that I've always liked is uh, Chamberlain Powell and Bond's Bowsfield Primary School in Kensington, which is, I, I, I came across because of Ian Nairn's book on London architecture. Um, which is absolutely transformative as a piece of architecture. And it must, it must do good things for people, male, the other, or, male or female. And the one I would think of where gender plays no role at all is the work of Hans Scherun. Mm. And the Philharmonie, of course, you know, you go inside if you've paid your money and are going to a concert. But the Staatsbibliothek, the state library next door, um, I've done research there because that's where the material was. Um, but that is a space that is just meant for people. And when mm. Vin Benders all those decades ago, but it wasn't all those decades ago for me, I went straight from doing research in there to seeing that movie in Philadelphia within about 48 hours. And the way the angels inhabit that space, he mm. knew something about that space. Mm. And public libraries are one of the most, the best building types for this kind of architecture. Mm. And that library this isn't about gender. This is about creating a place for people to be reflective because being reflective is what you do in a research library. Mm -hmm. But um, the light, the views, which have changed enormously because they used to look out on the Berlin Wall and the views were still good. Um, the, 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 the place, it just, it's a place where you want to sit down on the floor and pull books off the shelf, although most of it's in a book stack off limits and you page the books, the things that are there, you just, there's no place you could sit down in that on the floor or at a chair and not feel mm -hmm. special. And there's nothing about it's, it's, a, it's, and, and Sharoon's buildings from the outside, of course, they're just beyond weird, uh, but they're designed from the inside out and from the inside, they work. So that's a really good point to start. That's a really good point to, to finish, to, to, to finish on this idea that the, the, the idea of dwelling so we're going back to germany with heidegger this idea of dwelling starts on the interior modernism is influenced and inflected and hugely influenced by by the the, the female voice the female identity within the interiors of architecture and it shifts 
perhaps we're getting to a point where architecture can actually start, as people like you, Kathleen, start unpacking that modernist story about the role and efficacy of the female voice within it. Perhaps we can start thinking about an architecture that actually, I know, not celebrates, represents, gives tongue to that, that kind of thing. It's wonderful. I have, uh, I have greatly enjoyed um, sitting at your feet, I have to admit. Um, really, really beautiful. Um, thank you so much for your time and for, for um, telling us all about it. Um, um, yeah, really great, really interesting. I could talk to you for hours. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks again to Kathleen. Please do have a look at the links to her online presence at University College Dublin, and links to her works and books. Go buy them and go see her talk if you can. It's really worth it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow and share Airs for Architecture with literally everybody you know. And see you next time. Cheers.